This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book, The Republic, by Plato. As for who recommended the book, well, you can take your pick. Uh, There have been many people over the millennia that have recommended this book, but uh, the one we're picking out of uh, Tools of Titans is Maria Popova, who is best known for her blog, which has millions of of readers, started with a a mailing list that she uh, regularly sent to just to friends and has expanded well beyond that. Call, uh, the, the blog is brainpickings.org, features writing on culture, books, philosophy, all sorts of other stuff. Well worth the read. You can also find uh, Maria via social media of, of your choice in different ways. But, of course, brainpickings.org is the place to go for her. And I believe, Eric, you had something you wanted to read as, for, as far as her explanation for why she recommended this book. Yeah, here's what she said about the book when asked if she could guarantee that every public official or leader read one book. And here's where she comes in. The book would ra- would be rather obviously Plato's The Republic. I'm actually gobsmacked that this isn't required in order to be sworn into office like the Constitution is required for us American immigrants when it comes time to gain American citizenship. So that was her uh, her thought. And, and she was the one person in Tools of Titans that recommended this, and that was why. So you want to hit the about the author? Yeah, why are you going to turn this over to me? Well, you uh, <laughs> have been teaching Plato for the last 13 years, correct? Uh, something like that. I mean, that's... Uh through other other means not necessarily direct plato classes but yeah yeah anyway the author plato uh an athenian uh a philosopher in ancient athens uh who was uh a follower he came after socrates or as uh of course one of my high school history teachers uh insisted on saying until i corrected him uh and then he insisted that i was not not right until he then went and asked our Latin prof- uh, Latin teacher at that school about it and was corrected. He he insisted that it was Socrates. <laughs> I was like, who in the world is he talking about? Oh, Socrates. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I don't think after our class he, he made that mistake anymore, but uh, I don't oh. know how many times he taught different classes about Socrates. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, this is, uh, of course... One of the people referenced in uh, the Princess Bride, one of those, one, the, another bastion of great wisdom, you know, Plato, Socrates, or, or, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, anyway, um, widely understood as the uh, the founder, effectively, of the modern discipline of uh, uh, of philosophy. There's the the old statement that uh, all philosophy is simply footnotes to Plato at this point, that everybody is just uh, riffing off of what Plato put together uh, after, of course, uh, having been taught by Socrates. Uh, in any case, P- uh, Plato founded the Academy in Athens, uh, what, which you 
I suppose could loosely call the first institution of higher learning in the Western world. Uh, but basically, Western philosophy and, and science and everything else ultimately gets its roots in, uh, has its roots in some way, shape, or form. Its roots eventually uh, touch, touch Plato. So uh, everything that anyone is, ultimately talks about in the English language, even though we're, we're not talking the same language he did, uh, all of, uh, basically everything we, all of our assumptions and, and various philosophical principles and everything uh, in some way, shape, or form do go back and touch Plato. So one of the most foundational thinkers in world history. I don't think I mentioned uh, his, his time frame, but uh, born in the late 5th century BCE, uh, wrote up until his death around the mid-4th century BCE. Uh, quite a bit had happened in Athens during that time, including Athens uh, going from a pure democracy to tyranny, which uh, significantly influenced Plato's, uh, Plato's perspective on this. And of course, he watched his teacher Socrates uh, be convicted of uh, of uh, perverting the youth, or basically uh, 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 polluting the, the youth, leading them astray with his uh, philosophizing and, and sentenced to death. So he uh, was very skeptical about uh, the the nature of uh, pure democratic government and of uh, tyranny and all sorts of things. And, and of course, you get a lot of those reflections in this book uh, in the mouth of, of course, Socrates, who is his muse more often than not, as he writes dialogues. Uh, everything that Plato writes down is not actually his... He doesn't write down his own thoughts, even though they, as far as we can tell, he's giving us his own perspectives on things by shaping things the way that he, that he does. But he consistently presents uh, his, uh, his material in the mouth of other people, particularly Socrates, uh, who uh, then is in dialogue with other people. So you get these dialogues, of which the most famous is, of course, the Republic. So I suppose that's a, a lengthy enough introduction, uh, perhaps a little bit uh, over lengthy. But let's go ahead and get to overview and initial reactions. Yeah, and this should be interesting because you've you're very familiar with the work, and uh, this is the first time I'd ever read it. So, I recognized parts of it, uh, and especially the cave, the cave part. I remember that part. From, yeah, the allegory of the cave. But, uh, but yeah, my first time reading it, and I I always have uh, trouble with these these kind of books, and and uh, so I I I tried to take it slow. I, I even had some trouble with uh, with the translation. I started with uh, Every Man's Library version, and it was it was kind of slogging through it. So I, I switched to whatever version was on the on the iPad, the iBooks version, and not sure what the difference in translation was there, but uh, seemed to have an easier time getting through that. So I uh, stuck with stuck with that one. Through eh, the translations end. are for the weak. <laughs> Do you read it in the original? I did not uh, read read through this in the original for this particular Books of Titans episode, <laughs> though I but you have, have spent, in the past. I have spent my my share of time uh, working through Plato, various dialogues of Plato in Greek. Uh, though actually, really, I I don't know that I've I've messed with the, the Republic all that much. I think I've I've tinkered with a few things in it, but uh, I I did a, a seminar 
uh, in graduate school, I did a seminar on uh, uh, on the uh, where we where we translated the symposium, uh, and then we did a Neoplatonism seminar, uh, which involved translation of all sorts of stuff from Platonic works to up through uh, up through Plotinus, uh, who was a later uh, thinker in the Platonic tradition. So I I, th I think we did. Um, we did mostly the Timaeus in terms of the Greek there, but uh, I think when I was going through the Republic for I, for for that, uh, we may have tinkered a little bit with it, but I don't really remember much. Yeah. Well, um, uh, initial reaction to the book, uh, it was really interesting in that a lot of what we saw in and have seen in in some of the other books of Titans books are are common themes in this one and. and I guess I didn't expect those things to be to be in this book, so that was well. Wisdom that was is cool. all just footnotes to Plato, man. Yeah, yep. And uh, so we'll we'll discuss those things, but um, that was cool. But yeah, as as you mentioned, it it follows the Socratic method of answering the question: is it is more prof is it more profitable or advantageous to be just or or unjust? That's kind of the question at the beginning of the book, and then the uh, Plato's method of of not not telling you what to think, but uh, well, doing that in a different way of, of asking questions. And oh and yeah, he does to, tell to you what to think. think. Yeah, but but not not straightforward. He he does it through asking questions and then getting you to think about it instead of just well, here's here's what you should you should think. Um, so that was cool and yeah that's the the main the main gist from the beginning uh, is it more profitable or advantageous to be just or unjust and and and, and i want to jump in here real quick uh rather than giving my initial reactions which uh, i think it's a little late for that but um rather than giving those it's it's worth noting a couple things. One is that you often hear about the Socratic method, uh, particularly you know people talking about oh I prefer to teach through the Socratic method. I like to have my students, uh, you know, asking. I like to ask questions of my students and let them figure things out and all this. Oftentimes, what what people think is the Socratic method these days is a little different from from what Socrates actually employs in the dialogues, uh, and and what we see used throughout Plato's dialogues in general, in part because the Socratic method is not so much, oh, you know, I'm just going to ask questions and, and let people figure it out. He's actually asking very pointed leading questions that he, he has, a, you know, he has specific things in mind that he's trying to get people uh, towards, a particular vision, a particular argument in mind. And this is really more a style of argument uh, more so than just a style of teaching, although, as it turns out, it's a better a better way to teach than other forms of argument. So if you just argue a particular point without any sort of interaction, the person may not actually be as willing to follow. But if you can get that person to answer, well, yeah, of course that 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 makes sense, and then yeah, yeah, that make then you can lead them by degree to your conclusions. Uh, and then giving them opportunities to come in, come in and, and object and so on, at which point you can lead down another line of questioning. Uh, it turns out to be a much more difficult uh, means, uh, a, a much more difficult uh, kind of style of argument to argue against, uh, which is one of the reasons that, uh, that I'm, I'm, of course, uh, Plato 
employed these in, in, in the dialogues. And it, it does appear that it's probably likely that Socrates employed precisely this kind of uh, argumentative style, which made him so uh, frustrating to, <laughs> for people to, to, uh, to argue with. The second thing here that's worth noting, many, uh, many of our listeners are probably, uh, just given that we're speaking in English and in the, in the United States, and most of our listeners are from the United States, are probably familiar with uh, concepts in the Bible, particularly the New Testament and the Christian tradition, concepts of righteousness and unrighteousness. Now, it's worth noting that the words for righteous or unrighteous are the words that are in that 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 in uh, Eric's edition of uh, the Republic and most editions of the Republic, uh, and what we will be discussing on this podcast are translated with the words just or unjust. So righteous is just and unjust is unrighteous. Uh, and in, in large measure, these terms, by the time they get to the New Testament period, are understood in the Hellenistic world, in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament. Uh, they're understood very much in keeping with the kinds of arguments that are made here in in Plato about what is justice, what is injustice, what characterizes a just person versus an unjust person and all of that. So that, for those of you who haven't read this book and, and do come from that tradition, it's also worth reading this uh, this book in part because of how it's actually part of that discussion that, that the New Testament and the Christian tradition later uh, later joins as well and, and later has its own ways of, of developing. So worth noting. Uh, well, and that's one question I, I, I wanted to, to ask you on this book too, is, is how much of an influence did this book have in Jerusalem? Like would, would Paul have read this book? I, I would have been shocked. I would be shocked if, if Paul did not, uh, have firsthand knowledge of, of, of the Republic given, that he had some degree of uh, of Greek education, writing you know writing Greek reasonably well, uh, arguing in Greek, uh, being a Hellenistic Jew, uh, and again, and again he claims to be from uh, from a province of uh, a, a, a Greek speaking province in uh, what is now modern day Turkey. His education would have started with uh, with learning. Uh, some Homer and certainly some Plato, and this would have been among the among the uh, repertoire that you would have gained er, fairly early on in this sort of thing. So I, I would be shocked if he didn't have good knowledge of it, and even if he didn't read it directly, this was so in the air among any educated Greek speaker that you couldn't avoid it. And you know the concepts here are were, were in the air in the same way that uh, that modern. Uh, American philosophical concepts and so on are in the air. I mean, this is the, the stuff that people would, would talk about and, and def define the way that the terms were used in his in his period. So, uh, so yeah. And actually, there's some evidence that even uh, rabbinic literature and other things that were done in other languages had, they, you know, there, there's there's good research out there that shows that they were ultimately shaped and. Uh, you know, had had their they were influenced in some de to some degree by exposure to the ideas in Plato and other uh, Greco uh, other other uh, Hellenistic um, other other works from the Hellenistic philosophical tradition. Which again, after Alexander, you got to remember Alexander the Great 
conquered the ancient Near East all the way all the way to uh, the, the uh, all the way to the border of e- or, or of, uh, of uh, India, and the intelligentsia in that region spoke Greek forever after that. Uh, you know, for a, a long, long time, for a thousand years, basically. And uh, he spread Greek education partly because Alexander's tutor, when he was a teenager, was Aristotle, who was one of Plato's students. Uh, so from that point on, these sorts of things were taught in cities across the Greek-speaking empire, uh, which, uh, you know, ver- various Greek-speaking empires, actually, that, that splintered after uh, Alexander died, but they were divided up among Greek speakers. Uh, so, you know, all the way through that whole that whole area of the world, this stuff was was taught in the gymnasia and in the uh, in the various um, uh in the various early stages of any literate Greek speakers' uh, education. Okay, very cool. Especially the uh, connection with righteousness and, and just being just and unrighteousness and, and unjust. Yeah, in, injustice is unrighteousness, and justice is righteousness. I mean, they're basically they're, they're the same word. Dikaios, uh, dikaiosune. Uh, you know, and the the and the negatives of uh, thereof. All right. Okay. So let's go. Uh, let's go into our next section of our favorite quotes. Favorite um, quotes. I think you've got some more than me. So why don't you uh, go ahead and start? Okay. So the highest reach of injustice is to be deemed just when you are not. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. And it's yeah. pretty much true when you when 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 someone gains the reputation of uh being just when they're not that that that's pretty much the epitome of injustice. Yeah. I guess I'll do one more. Um pleasure deprives a man of the use of his faculties quite as much as pain. Which is Runs counter to the way that we often think, but I think it's absolutely true. And he gives several examples of this. Uh, you know, having a little bit of drink can be pleasurable. You have too much of the pleasurable thing, and you actually lose your capacity to enjoy it. Hmm. My first one, whereas the truth is that the state in which the rulers are most reluctant to govern is always the best and most quietly governed, and the state in which they are most eager, the worst. And that just makes me think of that scene in the movie Gladiator where uh, Marcus Aurelius' son comes up to him and he says, are you, uh, Marcus Aurelius says, are you, are you ready to lead? And he says, yes. And uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius says, then, then you're not ready. Whereas uh, the, the gladiator in the film, when asked that same question, he says, no, I'm not ready to lead. And uh, Marcus Aurelius says, then, then you are ready to lead. Of course, that can go the other way, that you may just know that you're not ready. Yeah. But, but if you are eager to lead, odds are, well, yeah. Anyway, um, let's see. Oh, then there's so much humor in this. I mean, uh, Plato's dialogues are underrated for their, their humor that, if you if you have any idea of some of the the backstory of any of some of these little quips uh, are are quite funny, and and they remain funny two thousand years later. All you have to do is change the uh, the terms just a little bit to more modern terms, and uh, and and they continue to be funny. But uh, here we go. 
If a man is to be in condition, would you allow him to have a Corinthian girl as his fair friend? Yeah, that's that's just hilarious. That given the reputation of Corinthian girls and Corinthian women, you know, this is uh Corinth, just to put it in perspective, um, at least from the perspective of the Athenians and generally speaking, <laughs> other parts of the world at this time and for quite a while after this, uh, Corinth had a reputation as um, sort of the Las Vegas of the world when it came to morals or maybe more uh, just the area outside Las Vegas in Nevada where, you know, you go for girls of certain reputation and you know if you want to if you want a man to be to, to be in good condition do you do you really want him to to be wasting all his strength with a corinthian girl <laughs> anyway i find that one that one funny maybe more than than some listeners would um <laughs> and then uh a second one since I'm, I'm doubling up since i have about twice as many as you do on here uh one that's appropriate to both of us here i am quite aware that the mere athlete becomes too much of a savage and the mere musician is melted and softened beyond what is good for him. There we go. Nice. (laughs) All right. My next one, because a free man ought not to be a slave in the acquisition of knowledge of any kind bodily exercise when compulsory does no harm to the body, but knowledge, which is acquired under compulsion obtains no hold on the mind. So that, that reminds me of uh, a lot of my early education, especially with, with books, you know, having to read books that under compulsion uh, is, is not the same as, as wanting to read them and, and reading them later later in life out of, uh, out of the joy of reading. So that one st- struck home. Yeah, so another one for me, uh, again, um, somewhat humorous, and I'm actually just going to quote part of it because it's funny, or if you just quote... Uh, the first half of it, then let the then let the wives of our guardians strip. Now, yes, it's a little bit, um, it's a little out of context, and it's not the full thing, but it actually does kind of get to where he's going. He, he uh, and then he explains that you know, well, you know, we may have some scruples about that now, but you know, we used to think that male male nudity was a bad thing, but now an experience showed that to let all things be uncovered was far better than to cover them up. You know, we're, we're much more enlightened. So, hey, all right. And then finally, um, actually two that are less, less funny uh, and just, you know, more, uh, you know, brilliant. Uh, the honorable mind, which is to form a healthy judgment, should have had no experience or, con- uh, or contamination of evil habits when young. Vice cannot know virtue too, but a virtuous nature educated by time will acquire a knowledge of both virtue and vice. And so those two quotes together, uh, I, I think is a brilliant insight that, um, that basically a, as a person engages in vice, that person loses the ability to, disting- to distinguish between virtue and vice. But a person who is virtuous can actually tell the difference. So uh, that's a pretty, pretty good insight, I think. Yeah. My last one is for, as the government is, such will be the man. And this gets into a lot of uh, the discussion in this book, which which I thought was really cool on later on on, on the, the founding of a city and what that means. Something I haven't really ever thought of, but a lot of talk about how as the individual is, so is the state and as the state is, so is the individual. So making sure both both parts there are are, are in agreement. And uh, so this this quote hit on that. 
Alrighty, so uh, let's go ahead and get into our nitty-gritty here, and um, we'll uh, we'll work we'll work uh, work our way out. So uh, you had some some initial stuff here. You uh, wanted to touch on some common themes. Yeah, uh, th- things that that I saw that we've seen in some of the other books of Titans books. One that uh, that I was very surprised to see here was the the issue of specialization. And uh, Plato talked about specializing in, in a particular field, a uh, particular job. And the reason being, which I hadn't seen in, in, in some of the other books that talk about specializing, the reason to, to take advantage of opportunities. Because the more you, you specialize, the more you dig down into something, the more that you're going to be aware of, of opportunities coming your way and uh, especially in, in that area. So I thought that was a cool, cool thing that he got into in regards to that. And then also the well-lived whole life, which we, we definitely saw in deep survival. Uh, not, not just uh, hoping that things work out in, in a moment of, of crisis, but, uh, but living each day and, and all the way to the end of your days uh, where in, in Deep Survival, they talked about um, seeing how a man dies, how, how a person dies to, to fully gauge their, their life. And Plato talked a lot about that in, in, in this book. Uh, one, one other thing, and in, in some of your quotes, Jason got into this, but the, uh, they, he talked a lot about the guardians of the city. So those who were responsible for protecting, for protecting the city. And the in the importance of honor of those of those people, and it, I guess it, it was interesting to read that because most of the time you kind of hear of of the the bad things that soldiers get into when they're when they're in in their life of soldier, being a soldier, um, and the 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 more. Uh, bad behavior side of things they can do but but to read this and and to see how important it was for for the honor of the of the guardians of the city i thought that was that was really cool so what 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 are some of your your things that uh i guess one that stuck out to you but then also things that really stick out to your students when you when you teach this um well i mean one of the main things that i always end up dealing with is this idea of the tripartite soul that he addresses um that you know he divides the soul so much of this of this book is and and you 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 hit this um in one of your favorite quotes actually that you know as the uh as is the uh uh let's see what is it uh uh as as the government is such will be the man he also talks about the that the ideal state is a macrocosm uh, of you know of it's a it's a large picture of how each individual person is so each individual is made up of the same kinds of components that you'd want the ideal state to do and so really when he's talking about you know the ideal state he's actually talking about the ideal human right the the way that the ideal man works uh and he divides this into three categories, uh, three specific, um, levels, uh, of, of a human where you've got, uh, 
the the level of the guardian essentially for the uh for the uh for the for the city you know for the for the for the state or the city uh you have three classes you have the guardians th that are the sort of philosopher slash warrior class uh they're the smallest class in the city but they and they provide for the self-control of the few so basically they live according to moderation the the uh uh, as 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 Plato says, the desires of the inferior many are controlled by the wisdom and desires of the superior few. So you have this moderation that is exhibited by these philosophers uh, at the top uh, that governs the whole city, um, and this is the equivalent in the per in the human being of the mind, right? The mind that can contemplate eternal realities and the fixed order of things and all that. Um, uh, that is the, and it's the part that, that allows us to make good rational choices, but it's also the smallest part. And it, but that, that's the part that should be governing things ultimately for human beings. Then you have the auxiliary part, which he talks about as soldiers. They're, they're kind of the supporting arm of the guardians uh, and they're trained to be soldiers and so on. Uh, and then after them, you have the third part, which is actually the largest part, and that is the money-making part of the of the city of the city or the state, and you know that's where your merchants, your craftsmen, your uh, various artisans of, of of all sorts operate in that class. Uh, so, and, and it's by far the largest class in all this, but it's kept in order by the guardians through the auxiliaries through through the through the the, the military class basically, uh, or the police class as it were, uh, and basically the. Uh, the, the, those classes have their uh, respective uh, corresponding parts in the human soul with the heart or the chest, the auxiliary, that's the soldiers, the part that, you know, that, that uh, with which a human being can get angry. It also is the part that ultimately makes decisions on, you know, you, you can reason things out, but you have to make your decisions some you know somehow and, and ultimately you do that you know basically with with that that spirited part that chest part of you your heart uh and then you have the part that has the and, and he gets into this later in the book where he he spells this out much more once he starts talking about the uh the tyrant and all this that the lower part of the body uh is the money making you know it's the desirous part the appetitive part uh the uh the part that that has desires for sensual stuff whether that's eating drinking etc so ultimately um it's the money making apparatus for the for the uh for the city it's the part that you know is out to increase in all this but it's the part that needs to be regulated the most by those who have the you know the philosophical rationale at the top and of course this is his model for how the human being should work that humans have this potentially disordered animal aspect of them by being embodied, you know, your gut and your genitals and all this, it, they want what they want. And it doesn't really matter that it's, you know, not right or that it's not rational. And that needs to be kept in order by the mind. And ultimately, you know, your, that central part helps make that decision. So, uh, uh, basically the, uh, the spirited part, the emotions are the helper of the rational part. So that's that heart part. Uh, now, for those of you uh, out there who are familiar with C.S. Lewis, he actually spends a good amount of time uh, explaining this tripartite soul part in a or this, this in modernizing it to some degree in the book uh, The Abolition of Man, which is one of my favorite books 
uh, actually in uh, from the from the twentieth century, where he actually makes the argument that uh, that modern education and the way that modern philosophy is going about things is making, as he calls them, men without chests. We're making uh, we're, we're we're training people up to to have great knowledge and all this, but without adequately training that central part of the soul to make good decisions and and to help the rational part in in that way and he says ultimately that leads away this is why he calls it the abolition of man leads away from the fundamental humanness of the person so um anyway uh, all that's very interesting it's also to some degree the source of what we see later on develop with uh with with sigmund freud uh, Freud has his own tripartite model. He just doesn't use the words that Plato does for them. He has uh, ego, id, and superego, but by and large, uh, the corresponding parts kind of map right on to what Plato's doing. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe Freud wasn't quite as clever as people think he was. He was just uh, essentially modernizing Plato and adding maybe a few additionally perverse twists when he was on his... Uh, on his um, cocaine binges and such uh when he was when he was high on cocaine and writing so yeah there's that anyway um yeah so that's that's one of the things that i think is is really worthwhile worth understanding for this because that notion of the tripartite soul and the way that um that human beings sort of work against each themselves right you, that you can assent you can ha you can feel like you want something and that you don't want something at the same time and he addresses this by this idea that there must be different parts in the human being you know divided in the soul and the will that actually impact this so uh so it's 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 been an, a tremendously influ influential view uh and a uh, really generative view in philosophy uh since this was written well, and, and there's also talk of the afterlife and that uh, the question that the book addresses at the beginning of is it more profitable, profitable or advantageous to be just or unjust, that question is ultimately answered uh, in, in Plato's terms by the gods. Uh, so it's not, it's not just something that can be answered here, uh, but it, it's kind of that view, again, of the, the person's whole life. Uh, and, and, and then that being judged by, by the gods or, or uh, in, in the afterlife. Uh, so that, that was also interesting. I mean, I know that comes in, in a lot of cultures, but um, was, was interesting to see it, I guess, in, in kind of this foundational book of philosophy. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, the, the interesting, uh, it's also interesting to hear his, um, his criticism of the traditional myths of his particular of his particular culture and time as unjust and wrongly portraying the gods by and and thereby leading people astray to do unjust things because the gods are so unjust and he says you know we need we need better myths we need better stories for the you know to tell to tell people to train them up to do this stuff so so yeah yeah, that, and that uh, that hits on some one of the more, I guess, difficult themes of the book as well. Um, getting rid of uh, of certain stories or or getting rid of ideas in in order to guide people a certain way. Um, yes, our our modern version of, of burning books type of type of idea. Uh, talk talk in the book of of a rule by the elite, even 
while acknowledging that there's a lot of problems of philosophers, uh, some eugenics discussion, and then... Uh, <laughs> oh, and, and, and you know, we got to have the women and children in common. Don't forget that part. Because you don't want people, you know, having, you know, especially with the guardian class, you don't want any of the guardians having their own families or they might, they might, you know, start having, you know, desires to, to start looking after their own and then not, and not the city. So then you end up with uh, divisions that lead to, you know, discord in the city and then nobody's happy eventually. So you've got to make sure that everybody, everybody has, uh, you know, at least in the guardian class, shared uh, women and children in the guardian class and uh, they draw their draw their partners for a time by lot. So, <laughs> so yeah, some, uh, he admits that would be difficult to execute. <laughs> some uncomfortable themes, uh, when you're, when you're reading this book, but, uh, nevertheless, a, a good one to read. Yep. So, yep. Any, anything else before we, uh, we close out? Yeah, I suppose there's a couple other things. I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff in terms of, you know, the knowledge versus opinion, uh, opinion acts as the auxiliary class to the intellect. So, you know, in the same way that you have, uh, the mind and you have the auxiliary class of the heart or, you know, the spirited part, the, 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 the helper of the rational part, opinion is the, is the intermediate between the mere physical appearances you know, and knowledge itself. Knowledge is, is you know, in, in a eternal sense. It's no. It's something that is connected with that which is t truly real and and is uh, uh, and and is beyond the things of of this world and the material. But opinion actually serves as the intermediate when you know with the with the representatives in this world. So uh, now this is actually a break with with Parmenides who came before. Plato, who said that opinion was entirely it was entirely worthless, and all that mattered was that eternal knowledge. And Plato says, "No, no, opinion actually has its has its place. You you it, you know you have to be able to go through the world in a certain way. And knowledge uh, knowledge is in in one domain, in in the domain of the becoming rather than being in in the in the stuff that's that's changing over time and all that. You know, opinions have jurisdiction." Uh, in that spot, you know, the stuff that floats between existence and non-existence that's changing all the time. You, you have to deal with those ambiguities and opinions worth that. So it's interesting to see uh, there. There's also a good amount of discussion of the good, the, the principle of the good. Or, and and uh, you see this become really big in the Platonic uh, tradition of the good and the beautiful and um, in continued uh, continued. Um, discussion there so uh so yeah that um uh <laughs> that uh there, there's there's plenty plenty of additional stuff that we could we could discuss uh beyond that but um yeah this this could very easily go on for hours and hours and hours and it's probably uh i mean all i can say is that everybody should read this book <laughs> and um you know whether whether uh whether um it is whether whether ultimately we agree with it entirely or not in different spots. Uh, it has a way of critiquing even our even the modern world in ways that are, in in some cases, kind of shocking. How insightful it can be, uh, even down to uh, the the dangers of democracy and leading towards tyranny by basically elevating the worst 
who are the most eager for power and all of these other things. And then that person eventually it, it, it proceeds into tyranny. And it, it turns out that historically he's got a pretty good case for this in terms of how governments give one, give way one to another. Uh, and you know, some of this is because he had experienced, he'd seen some of this in his own day, but, uh, you know, he, this is where a lot of the framers of the U.S. Constitution got a lot of their ideas in terms of trying to limit the separation, limit limit the branches of government and separation of power and skepticism about human nature and all this other stuff. A lot of that stuff comes straight out of the Republic. Uh, one other quote I should throw in there, too. Any musical innovation is full of danger to the whole state and ought to be prohibited. I think that's... Look at, look at what rock and roll did to the to the world yeah yeah i think that's a good a good place to maybe leave off <laughs> the bad musical innovation <laughs> yeah yeah in, in conclusion i mean a good one to read uh for me uh a, a harder one to read i mean it just the the difference in in years i mean it's obviously the the oldest book we've read this year the most uh intellectually stimulating and, and challenging uh but i think those that that they're important to read and uh this one this one in particular especially for the impact it's had on on the, the world we're in now um so yeah i mean not not like my favorite book that that i've read this year but uh for 2017 but uh, but but an important one what about you uh, you know, it's a book that's worth revisiting periodically. It is it is truly one of the great classics, uh, not just of Western history. I mean, this is uh, this is interacting with Eastern traditions as well of the time. I mean, I guess Western relative to uh, is rel- West West as a relative thing. But this is one of the great uh, great books in human history, uh, and is something that I I agree with Popova that that this is a sort of thing that everyone in government should have to read. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that uh, that should be taught in every school. Uh, you know, there's you know, there's no reason that it, that a seventh grader couldn't read this and, and basically understand everything in here uh, in, in, in large measure, uh, provided there were a few notes on a couple of the more obscure little references or whatever. But it's so valuable to, to be able to read this. And it's one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm of the I'm of the view that reading the old books is often uh uh, often a good antidote against the um, the particular fashions of our time, and this is one of the uh, one of the great old books uh, of world history. So, uh, cannot emphasize the importance of this one enough. Yeah, that's going to do it for us today. Uh, you know where to find us. We're at booksoftitans.com, Instagram, and Twitter. And next week we will be back with something. We're not quite sure yet, but uh, I'm, I've been reading a couple books that are not on the Tim Ferriss um, suggested list, uh, a, a few of the, the 26 that, um, that are not in that list. So I could talk a little bit about those, or by that point I may have uh, the, next, the next one ready. Jason, what are, what are you currently reading? Um, several things, uh, mostly, uh, trying to finish a couple of, uh, the books for the world religions class that I'm teaching. 
but uh, once I finish those, I don't even remember what the other one that I'm working on right now is. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm finishing that book review that uh, I was working on the last episode. So we're finishing the book review on uh, Peter's Halachic Nightmare and uh, should be finished with that uh, here within... Uh, Within about uh, I don't know 15 hours or so, and uh, I will be glad to be done with that so that I can get on to other other things. But um, but yeah, mostly stuff uh, connected to teaching, and then I'll be able to uh, to read plenty once I'm I'm done with all that. Cool. Well, I've got um, yeah. Actually, I will have a, a books of Titans one completed by next week, I think. Um, but right now I'm reading Running with the Devil by Noel Monk. And he was the manager of Van Halen. And the book is about the early years of Van Halen, their first seven years. And they're my favorite band. And so I'm uh, learning learning more about them. And so it's been an interesting book, uh, a really sad book on a lot of fronts, uh, a lot of inf- really good business information, actually. Uh, so it's, it's, been, um, it's been an enjoyable book. But um, yeah, the next one after that is, is Norse. Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman, who uh, who was the author of the Graveyard Book, one of uh, Ferris's favorites. So I'm looking forward to, to reading that one next. All right. Well, I guess we can wrap there. So uh, we'll go ahead and give our little outro. Keep reading. Keep listening. Keep improving. And keep it real. I made this.